Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about Smallville every eighth episode of this of this podcast. And the reason for that is because I love Smallville. Now I've explained actually the real reason. Oh, I shuddered. It's got to be several dozen times by now. So if you want to hear a, a blow by blow by blow account of why exactly I talk about Smallville in every eighth episode, well, I've talked about it so many times in other Smallville episodes that, well, it should be easy for you to find answers if you want. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm kind of suffering from a little bit of don't give a fuckism lately, but. I don't really feel like explaining it too much all that uh, all, all that much anymore. So, anyway, what I what I did feel like doing is putting together a little bit of a I don't know like radio drama, you know, like you used to hear in the old days. Basically, one of the things that I haven't really talked about a whole lot in all of these Magnus talks about Smallville retrospectives that I've done. One of the things that I haven't really talked a whole lot about is external media, you know? There were other things that were going on Smallville-related apart from the show itself during the run of the show, and for the most part, I've avoided those things just because I kind of regarded them as being, well, rather tangential. You know, they were pretty unrelated to whatever was or was not going on with Smallville as a TV show at that time, and so I didn't really see what it was worth to talk about it too much, right? And I guess what I mean by that is stuff like the Chloe Chronicles or the Vengeance Chronicles or or I think there were also the Queen Chronicles. You know, I didn't really want to go too much into all that stuff because, like I say, you know, what's the point? You know, it just didn't really seem to make sense. But during the the sixth season of Smallville, which is to say Smallville's shippiest season, there was a tie-in that was going on that I actually think has some kind of merit and uh, value, both in terms of the story that Smallville was telling during the sixth season, its shippiest season, but also for, I guess you could say, the larger Smallville mythos, right? And what I'm talking about here is Justice and Doom. And it was basically an online game that was sponsored by Toyota or something, I think. And it basically... uh, Basically, it followed the adventures of this kind of uh, prototype Justice League. You know, the stuff that they, get, that they got up to after the episode Justice. And, you know, the adventures and whatnot that, that took place. And there's some story shit that came out of that. Which, again, mostly does not relate really at all to, to Smallville. But there was one tiny little part of Justice and Doom that does relate to Smallville. Again, more as like... Smallville's, like, big picture. You understand? Not so much to what's happening in the sixth season, Smallville's shippiest season, but more like the sort of the the bigger franchise of what Smallville is up to, right? I guess you could say, like, the macro story that's being told here. And um, it's basically a meeting of the members of, uh, well, for right now, it's called Level 3. Now, this little secret group is going to get another name in the future, but at least for the purposes of Justice and Doom, the the name of this group is Level 3, right? And 
throughout the show, it's hinted and even outright stated that there's some kind of a connection between the the swans, the Luthers, the Teagues, and the Queens, but not really too much is ever put down on paper. You know, we don't really have a whole lot to go on at this stage in the game about what exactly the connection between those families was, right? Until Justice and Doom and the revelation of this group that, at least for right now, is called Level 3. I don't really want to spoil ahead too much and tell you what the group's eventual name would become. But for right now, this is Level 3. And there was a transcript of a meeting between the members of Level 3 that was released. And so I thought, you know what, it might be kind of fun to get some of my podcasting friends together and have them record the minutes of this meeting and kind of give you guys a little bit of something extra to listen to, you know? So I reached out, and as it happened, you know, they all agreed to do it. And so I'm not, this isn't like a swipe at anybody, or if it is, I guess maybe it's a swipe at myself. But it actually took, I want to say maybe like a year and a half, or maybe even like two years, to get all of these different things recorded. And that's just because, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to need this, this sort of audio radio drama thing. I knew that I wasn't going to need that for a long time. And so I didn't really want to, you know, bust anybody's balls about it too much, you know, because I mean, guys, you've got like a year and a half to figure this out. You know, there's time. So anyway, but got it finished uh, just a couple of weeks ago at the time that I record this. It was just a couple of weeks ago. And so basically what I want to do and just with just a little bit more ado, what I want to do is get this uh, sort of radio drama started. Like I say, I wanted a voice for this drama that's not mine. And so I reached out, like I say, to a couple of different uh, podcasting friends of mine, and they all agreed to do it. So playing Virgil Swan is Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network. Playing Lionel Luther is John M. Wilson of podcasts on, honestly, <laughs> too numerous to mention. Playing Genevieve Teague is Rebecca Johnson of Supergirl Forever Radio. And playing Robert Queen is J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave of Dave Does Daredevil or uh, Dave Does Podcasting. I mean, he's he's actually had a couple of different formats and models and whatnot for his show. But the point is, all of them are great. They are friends of mine. And I thank them for taking the time to uh, make their contribution to this and really take things up to the next level, you know, especially, you know, considering that I didn't, all I really wanted them to do was basically just say the words, but what they interpreted from my instructions was acting. So, you know, instead of just them sitting there reading, they're actually acting. So they're giving me a lot more than, than I originally asked for. So, you know, it's like bonus content and then it's like bonus, bonus content, you know? So anyway, lots of fun. So anyway, without further ado, this is minutes for level three meeting number two, as recorded by Bridget Crosby location, Virgil Swan's home, Westchester County, New York, 1987. Attendees are Virgil Swan, Lionel Luther, Genevieve Teague, Robert Queen, Bridget Crosby.
friends. Thank you for coming. I take your attendance to mean that you are all convinced, as am I, that an invasion is imminent. I suggest we begin with our individual progress reports. Before we begin anything, Dr. Swan, I want to be clear on what is expected of each of us. Mr. Luther, you were invited to join our group because of your company's unique contribution to the field of genetics. But if you don't think your scientists are up to the task... Memorizing the Latin alphabet is a task, Doctor. You've asked Luthercorp to build an army of people enhanced with superhuman abilities. Since when can Lionel Luther resist scientific accolades? Your findings in bioengineering are as radical as they are impressive. We're simply asking you to expand upon your existing work. That you would make people evolve to a level that allows them to defend themselves against whoever or whatever is coming. After all, your company's slogan proclaims, we make things grow. Our slogan refers to wheatgrass and soybean. You're asking about human testing, about experiments whose results are completely unpredictable. I don't need to remind you that mankind has a drastically lower pain tolerance than arugula. We're talking about humanity here. Someone call a medic. I think Lionel's heart just beat twice in one minute. I'm merely being realistic, Robert. Then again, I suppose if I'd spent the last 20 years toying with model circuit boards, the level of consequence we're dealing with would elude me as well. Sheathe your daggers, gentlemen. There's a much larger battle to prepare for. Dr. Swan is right. No one is underestimating the magnitude of what we're asking, Lionel. Why do you think we chose you for such a challenge? If your flattery provided answers, I might relish it. You've all seen the facility I've dedicated to our endeavor. We're prepared to sink a lot into this. I just want you all aware that no amount of splicing, no catalyst currently known to man, could yield the desired results. I'm curious where you think we'll discover the essential element that will make possible goals as ambitious as ours. Sometimes, the most elusive answer finds us when we open ourselves to all possibilities. We can't forget there may be those out there who already possess that which is needed. Or who could be trained and armed to do what science cannot. Exactly. Regardless, we must work together to protect those who can't protect themselves. That's quite altruistic of you, Robert. Isn't that the point? Mr. Queen, perhaps you can fill us in on your progress. Queen Industries' Level 3 facility is now fully functional. You'll have the first round of designs before our next meeting. Excellent. As you're all aware, my team is currently refocusing a number of SWAN satellites in order to detect any potential threats. If something is headed our way, we'll know. What have you found, Genevieve? The symbols I showed you at our first meeting have appeared in several locations around the globe. Whoever is coming has been here before. Have you been able to discern any meaning from those symbols? Any insight into their purpose? Not yet. But Edward and I suspect there are more artifacts out there. We'll continue to scour the globe in search of anything that might illuminate this group's endeavors. And I'll also continue my search for those who already possess these special abilities. It seems we all understand what must be done. I believe we do. Yes. It appears we don't have much choice. 
My associate will be contacting you in the usual fashion, with information pertaining to the next phase. Before we adjourn, however, I should add that we've begun construction on our proposed safe haven, which will be available should our efforts prove unsuccessful. My friends, let us all hope that we never need it. Okay, I'm back now, continuing my analysis of Smallville Season 6. Smallville's shippiest season. And today's little adventure begins with Episode 12, Labyrinth. Clark hallucinates that he's a patient in a mental hospital and that his whole life has been one big delusion. So... The majority of Labyrinth takes place in Clark's world of delusion, and so because of that, it's a little tougher to analyze because we just don't really see a whole lot of the real characters. And yet, this episode ties in directly with the season arc of Clark tracking down the zoners, so by definition, this isn't a standalone episode, or filler, as the haters call it. But as I say, analysis is a little bit tougher here, but not impossible. For one thing, it's important to emphasize that Dr. Hudson, which is to say the villain of the piece, he needed, to, he needed Clark to surrender to him. If entering Clark's mind was all he needed in order to win, well, he accomplished that much pretty early on and pretty easily, but Dr. Hudson needed Clark to willingly submit to him. Even if Clark is submitting under false pretenses, he must still submit. The only way to do that is to offer Clark a set of choices. A set of shitty choices, sure, but choices nonetheless. He can resist his treatment and stay in the loony bin, or he can undergo treatment and be cured. Supposedly. Except that it's the opposite. Undergoing the treatment in the, de the delusion world would give Dr. Hudson absolute control over Clark's body. Fighting him is the only way to achieve victory. And freedom. Now look, Clark's won a lot of victories during the run of Smallville, and those have all come to varying degrees from physicality in some way or another. Not all of them, but many of them. Still, it's interesting to note here that victory comes in the mind, in Labyrinth. The physical aspects of Clark's showdown with, Do with Dr. Hudson are completely superficial. This is all in Clark's head. So, you could fairly well view this as more of an intellectual and mental victory for him. It's interesting to note just how close Clark came to losing. What ultimately turns him around is hearing Shelby's bark. It's only then do we viewers realize that the reverberating snarls and growls that we've heard all through the episode were, in fact, Shelby barking at Clark this whole time. When Clark realizes that, he, he wins his battle with Dr. Hudson. Still, there are a few other odds and ends going on in Labyrinth. Hudson gives Clark fairly good justifications for believing that he is, in fact, crazy. 
Oliver Queen's a security guard. Raya's a nurse. Milton finds a doctor. Arthur Curry and Victor Stone are fellow patients. Jarrell is a brand of hand soap, so on and so forth. Phantom Zone and Fortress of Solitude are titles of books in Hudson's office, and 331 just so happens to be the capacity of Clark's ward. All around, it's some really clever gimmicks that Clark might have subconsciously absorbed if he truly was a normal guy suffering from schizophrenia stuck in a nuthouse. Another important aspect of Labyrinth, though, is that it, it properly introduces John Jones, Manhunter from Mars, but it immediately gives Clark and the audience reason not to trust him. You're not crazy, Kal-El. We don't have much time, so listen to me closely. I believe you're from another planet. What makes you say that? Because like you, I'm not from here. I come from Mars. You can't trust anyone. Hey! Don't even think about it. I mean, come on, that's funny. Another good reason, though, is goings-on with Lex Luthor. I mean... Look, everybody loves Michael Rosenbaum as Lex Luthor. And there's really not much for me to add when it comes to how he owned the character. It's all been said before. Mostly by people who could say it better than I could. Still, it'd be criminal to overlook his amazing performance here. This isn't the usual Lex that we're used to seeing in Smallville. This is a guy who was injured by the meteor shower, abandoned by his father, and victimized by a lunatic who was convinced that he had superpowers. When you save someone's life, you tend to remember. You really think you saved me? Well then, let me refresh your memory. to spend the rest of my life in this chair because of you. This is impossible. I was there. And you caused the accident. Oh, you claimed you saw my car swerving out of control, so you jumped in front of it to save me with your superpowers. But when I jerked the wheel, my Porsche flipped end over end and wrapped around the guardrail. Is that what happened? If it was up to me, you'd be rotting in jail. My father insisted you go to that mental hospital instead. Anything to impress Martha Kent with his kindness. This is a trick. It's a trick! Really? Open your eyes, you crazy son of a bitch! Does this look like a trick to you? one thing I regret in my life is that I didn't just run you over. In Labyrinth, as an episode, Lex is an angry, bitter, resentful man eaten up with hate and regret. It's, it's just some really amazing acting, and Rosenbaum sells every last bit of it. It's just 
awesome. But that's in the world of Clark's delusion. In real life, he and Clark are pretty much on the same terms as always. Or so he thinks. But Clark throws him a curve. I woke up. Lana. I should have guessed your delay wasn't the herbal tea. Clark? It's good to see you out and about, Mike's. You know, you actually sounded convincing when you said that. I appreciate the civility. You ready to go? You don't want to keep the wedding plan waiting. Yeah, we were just saying goodbye. Speaking of acting, Tom Welling really brings home the goods, too. Here in Labyrinth, he once again proves what a solid actor he's become. All or most of, of what he does here in Labyrinth would have been impossible to him back in the first season, but ever since then, each successive season has given us at least one episode where Welling proves how much he's growing. In season two, it was Red. In the mighty season three, it was Exile. In the dreaded season four, it was Transference. In season five, it was Splinter. And here in season six, it's Labyrinth. Clark's lonely and confused. He has very good reasons to believe that his old life was a complete delusion, but every now and then, he stumbles across some ambiguous reason or, or some other cause so that he has a reason now to cling to hope. Hope that he's not crazy. That this is all somehow a trick or a dream or something. But it comes and goes. At the beginning of his scene with Lex and Luther Court Plaza, Clark starts off with a lot of bravado. Clark's throwing his balls around trying to take control of the situation, but when Lex hits him with what really happened during the supposed bridge rescue, Clark looks like he's just been punched right in the balls. Later, during his scene in the loft with Lana, Clark starts off relieved just to see her, and then truly does come off just a little unhinged. But here's the thing. Welling never goes too far in either direction. He's never so over-the-top psychotic that you really do question his sanity, but at the same time, he's never so willfully in denial that you believe he's an idiot. He finds that, that sweet spot where he constantly yo-yos back and forth between certainty in his cause and utter hopelessness. And yes, a little desperation. But he never goes full psycho here in Labyrinth. One kind of funny bit of business is that Clark's been working like hell to fix the tractor ever since Jonathan died. We've, we've seen him work on it, we've seen him pick up spare parts for it and stuff like that, but at the very beginning of this episode, Clark finally fixes the tractor. It's just, it's a kind of funny moment in such a dark and serious episode. Now... There's a little bit of a pink elephant in the room here when it comes to Labyrinth. And in short, it's that people want to compare Labyrinth as an episode to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Normal Again. 
thing is, though, the similarities are only superficial. They both have similar broad strokes, the main characters in the loony bin, so there's really no denying that, but for Clark, it's the machinations of one of the zoners that he's been hunting all season long. His challenge is to reject what he sees, act on faith, and break free of his mental prison. It's clear that Clark's not crazy. He's just been taken over by the zoner. In Normal Again, it's pretty ambiguous as to whether or not Buffy is a psycho stuck in an asylum, or if it's all a dream that the real-life Slayer was having. It could easily be one or the other. It's deliberately left open to interpretation. The only people who see Labyrinth as a ripoff of Normal Again are mostly too lazy to analyze either of them. Crimson, Episode 13. On the surface, this is another kooky character-out-of-character episode. Lois gets a dose of red kryptonite, drags Clark along for the ride. Both of them end up crashing Lex and Lana's engagement dinner. Clark ends up kidnapping Lana, which between ruining his evening and running off with his bride, royally pisses off Lex, so he and Clark have it out in the barn, and only Martha's timely intervention saves Lex from certain death, but doesn't prevent Lana from gaining an invaluable clue about Clark's secret. Now, there was a lot of hype with Crimson as an episode. This is where the Lois and Clark love story starts. I mean, hell, even the poster for this episode got in on the fun. The legendary love affair begins tonight. Now, it's true that Crimson isn't the start of Lois and Clark dating. But the idea of them dating is a lot more believable after Crimson than it would have been before. But I'll come back to that later. Like I said... On the surface, this is another kooky, character-out-of-character episode, but appearances can be deceiving. It's funny because Crimson to me is the definitive season six episode in a lot of ways, in that Clark and Lana are broken up, Lana's engaged to Lex, there's awkwardness to spare with that arrangement, Lois and Clark don't want to admit that they even know each other, much less are attracted to each other, Jimmy and Chloe are an item, and, might I say, loving it. And there's other shippy bullshit going on, too. I mean, I have mentioned that this is Smallville's shippiest season, haven't I? Now, the obvious place to start is Jimmy attempting to pair Lois and Clark together. This is more than just irony, too. It says something about Jimmy that he sees something in Lois and Clark being together that literally... Nobody else on the show can quite picture. I'll come back to whether Lois and Clark agree with them on that later. For right now, though, let me just say that one of the things people remember about Crimson to this day is Lois and Clark's super leap across Metropolis from the Daily Planet rooftop to Oliver Queen's apartment. By now, we've only seen just a couple of super leaps in Smallville as a TV show, but this is one of the most ambiguous so far because of the distance and control that Clark exercised. Some people want to argue that Clark 
kind of, sort of, flew in that sequence. You know? And honestly, it's hard to argue with that. Did he fly? Or was it just one hell of a leap? Eye of the Beholder. What I can say for sure, though, is that the moment where Clark jumps or flies across Metropolis is one of the greatest moments in all of Smallville's history. The nighttime, the impossibly huge full moon, the colors, the lighting, it's just awesome. This type of shot wouldn't have really worked all that well back in the first season. And I don't mean that to bash on the first season either, but that moment looks taken right out of a comic book. And for everything else that I could say about season one, it, shall we say, didn't look like a comic book. Most seasons of Smallville had that one unique shot that people remember forever. In season two, it was Clark leaping from the Daily Planet rooftop into Luther Court Plaza. In season three, there's basically anything, really, from Memoria. Even the dreaded season four has Clark flying in Crusade and leaping onto the back of a truck in the episode Lucy. The fifth season has Clark intercepting a nuclear fucking missile, and season six has several shots to choose from, such as Clark and Zod wrestling in midair from the episode Zod. There's the Ridge facility blowing up back in Justice. Or, as it goes for Crimson, there's Lois and Clark's late-night super leap. My point is that comic book visuals are becoming more and more important to Smallville's cinematic identity all the time. And there's going to be plenty more where that came from before this is all over, too. Apart from that stuff, though, lots of character going on here and lots of continuity. Episode 10, Hydro, set up the, the fact that there's a real spark between Clark and Lois. Lois forced a kiss on Clark when he was disguised as the Green Arrow because she suspected that it was Ollie under the mask. Or sunglasses. But it was Clark pretending to be the Green Arrow specifically to throw Lois off Ollie's trail. Either way, though, Lois still kissed Clark. And it was very apparent that they both enjoyed the experience. And uh, Crimson takes that to the next level. Like I say, this is the first indication we ever get that Lois and Clark could have a relationship together. Now, true, it's an ambiguous thing because they're both drugged at the time. Still, it should be mentioned that Red Kryptonite's calling card is that it doesn't create emotions or ideas. It just brings them to the surface. So, on some level, Lois chose Clark. And for for his part, Clark isn't completely opposed to that idea either. Obviously, they both need to be drugged in order to be interested in each other at this stage in, in, in their relationship. But you know what? That's not the point. The point is that Lois and Clark are forced to acknowledge that they do somewhat, kind of, sort of have eyes for each other. On a physical level, if nothing else. Like I said before, Lois and Clark don't start dating in this episode, but the idea of them dating, at least at some point or another later on, isn't such a crazy notion after credits roll for Crimson. 
It says something that neither of them is entirely comfortable with the idea, but they're not completely surprised either. They're also not really all that upset about it. The other issue here, though, is that it adds up for both characters. Lois is still stinging from her breakup with Oliver. For his part, Clark isn't really in much better shape since Lana publicly chose Lex over him. They're both on the rebound. Again, all the Red Kryptonite does here is bring that stuff more to the surface. That's not all that's brought to the surface, though. Nope, nope. When Clark was on Red Kryptonite back in Season 2, he first pursued wealth and fame. And that was the episode Red. In Rush, also from Season 2, he lusted for Chloe and revealed his powers to her. At the end of the season, Red Kryptonite drove Clark to Metropolis where he lived the high life while keeping his powers a secret. But here, none of that happens. Clark's a bit of a slave to his emotions, that much is true, but he's not as outright fucking greedy and avaricious as, he, as other times that he was on Red Kryptonite. Sure, Clark wants Lana, but that's because he's always wanted Lana. What Clark doesn't do in Crim uh, Crimson is ride off to Metropolis on a stolen motorcycle and rob ATMs. He's not chasing fame and fortune. He doesn't want to exploit his powers for personal gain. His basic desires have changed since the second season. One big part of season six has been that Clark's done a lot of growing up. Not only is he more willing to take responsibility for his own actions, vis-a-vis -vis recapturing all the zoners, but Crimson shows that Clark simply isn't as greedy and materialistic as he used to be back in the second and mighty third seasons. And this is good stuff. Another thing, though, is that in the second season, Clark would make a lot of baseless condemnations of other characters and accuse them of, of a lot of completely untrue bullshit. When he was dosed on Red Kryptonite, that is. But that doesn't happen here in Crimson. Instead, Clark skewers everybody in his life with the truth. Clark doesn't approve of Martha having any kind of relationship with Lionel. It means nothing to Clark to ruin Lex and Lana's big evening. Clark even takes a pot shot at Chloe for pining for him all these years, and as suggested in other episodes this season, he admits that he's relatively open to the idea. A lot of this stuff could be inferred from a lot of different episodes this season, but one major thing that comes from Clark's tirade is announcing to everybody that he truly hates Lex. Guys, this is Clark totally uninhibited. It's not that he's talking shit. Everything that he says is true. He's speaking his mind. He says what he thinks. He doesn't have to invent a bunch of hurtful bullshit to say to people because the truth is going to do just fine. And he tells everybody in the room that he hates Lex. But for as harsh as that is, he saves his harshest words for Lana. Now look, this is an audio medium, so there are complexities that we just can't get into here. But seriously, go back and watch that speech in context. Lex looks like he just about wants to take a shot at Clark long before he actually tries. And that's some really great acting from Michael Rosenbaum, as might be expected. Now, got a couple of different clips you need to listen to. Looks 
like we missed dinner. Clark, what are you doing here? Come on, Lex, you didn't think I was gonna miss this, did you? And look, my own mother would rather raise a glass with the enemy than stand by her own son. Clark, you're not yourself. It's okay, Mom. You're more at Luther than at Kent these days anyway. I mean, Dad's been, what, dead a year? But who can blame you for joining the race with Lana to see who's gonna add the Luther monogram to their name first? Lex, he's obviously on something and he wants us to react. Please don't. Chloe, I can't say that I'm surprised that you're celebrating here. After all, once Lana's off the market, all those years of unrequited pining may actually pay off. I can't say I haven't thought about it. And you. You know, I gotta hand it to you. If you were in a rebound, why not choose the one person that I hated the most? But I mean, come on, Lana, the joke's over by now, isn't it? Clark, I think you've done enough damage. Why don't you leave? I am not done yet! Besides, Lex, I haven't given you my gift yet. Congratulations on sealing the deal. To baby Luther. The real reason that Lana's marrying you. No one else in this room is going to save you from Lex, then I will. I don't think so. Lana is your past. I'm your future. This is the present. Lana, you hardly knew anyone at that party. Clark, what do you want from me? What I've always wanted, for you to be happy. I would love to know how that feels. But it seems like every time I get close, you rip it all away from me. Lana, stop kidding yourself. You're never gonna be satisfied with Lex. You can't marry him. I've already made up my mind. Even though you're still in love with me? What makes you so sure? Because I'm still in love with you.
many times, just waiting for you to say something and you decide to do it now? You don't love me, Clark. You just can't stand the idea that I love someone else. Lana! Go ahead, Lana, tell him that you'd rather be with me. Don't listen to him, he's on something. Oh, well, it didn't seem to bother you two minutes ago when you were kissing me. What do you really expect is gonna happen now, Clark? Exactly what you're afraid of. I'm not a competition. You are to Lex. He didn't tell you? <laughs> he's always wanted everything I've ever had. And you're at the top of that list. You're just a trophy to him. And he's nothing but your consolation prize. Now tell me you don't love me. Lana, tell me you don't stay away from her. You don't want to do that. You can't win. You don't even know the rules of the game. So what did you decide, Clark? Are you gonna kill me? You can't blame me for this, Lex. You did this to yourself. Oh, come on, Clark. You love it. Ever since that day on the bridge, you've always seen yourself as my savior. The one thing that would pull me off the dark path I'd started. See, that's why you cling to the idea that there's still some good in me. You don't want to face the fact that you might have failed. Or maybe I just can't believe that someone would have so little willpower. It's a little hard to compete with the iron willpower it takes to kill one of your best friends. How did you know I was going to come back like this? You don't realize how much danger you're in. I used to think you had this strong inner core. You were so virtuous. And yet you lie. All the time. To me, to Lana, to all the people who cared about you. What kind of sick person would do that? If you thought this friendship was so doomed from the beginning, then why did you fight so hard to keep it? Because I wanted everything you had. The family, the inconspicuous life, the loyal girlfriend. Well, at least I walked away with the part you loved the most. You're not yourself. Or maybe I finally am. Now, I included a little section there from Oracle from episode five. Now, here's the thing. Lex doesn't remember that conversation that he had with Clark in the barn, but he outright told Clark all that stuff. Lex doesn't remember it, but Clark does. The other thing, though, is that back in Hydro, 
Lex used Lana's pregnancy to destroy Clark. Clark returns the favor here in Crimson when he barges in on Lex's party and announces that Lana's preggers and stuff. And yes, in a sense, it's a betrayal. But it's also Clark turning the tables on Lex. He takes the exact thing Lex used to destroy him back in Hydro and uses it to humiliate Lex and Lana in front of their friends here in Crimson. Anyway. So yeah, Clark on Red Kryptonite may be a complete asshole, but at the same time, it's tough to argue that he doesn't have a point with everything that he says. When he was a kid and got affected by Red Kryptonite, he was a greedy, bratty teenager with superpowers. But as an adult, Red Kryptonite makes him a cynical, bluntly outspoken asshole. But he tells the truth. You gotta give him that much. He tells the truth. He also kicks a lot of ass. As I said, the only reason he didn't kill Lex here in Crimson is because Martha showed up at the right time, armed with green kryptonite. Otherwise, Lex would have been pushing up daisies. Of course, Clark has to confront all of this at the end of the episode. If you hadn't shown up in time, I'm not sure what I would have done to Lex. How'd you know what to do? The last time you had some kind of kryptonite in your system, you had to sweat it out. Weakening you seemed to be our only chance. I just can't believe all those things I did. I can. I guess I can't blame you for being mad at me, too. Clark, you've walked around here for years, bottling everything up, basing every decision on what's best for other people. You never stop to think what's best for you. Mom, you don't think I really meant those things I said about you and Chloe? I think there was a grain of truth in all of it. Every time you've been affected by red kryptonite, it hasn't changed who you are. It's just stripped away your inhibitions. I think you need to start being more honest about how you feel. So you're saying that I want to kiss Lois and keep Chloe in my back pocket while the whole time I'm still in love with Lana? You're the only one who can sort that out. When I kissed Lana, I could tell that she still felt something. And Mom, Mom, I can't let her marry Lex. This is probably hard to hear, but I think the best thing you can do is leave her alone. The problem with introspection is that you sometimes get answers that you don't like very much. Clark has to face the fact that he's got the hots for Chloe, he definitely enjoys tonsil hockey with Lois, and he still hasn't let go of Lana. He's also got to accept the notion that the only reason he's not guilty of Lex Luthor's murder is because Martha's good at thinking on her feet. Like I say, sometimes introspection's a little bit of a bitch. Getting answers about yourself is sometimes a not very pleasant experience. Now, I realize that people see inconsistencies with Clark apparently wanting Lois, Chloe, and Lana. Honestly, that's one of the episode's more honest revelations, if you ask me. The fact is, you can be as in love with and committed to somebody as you want, but sometimes in life, you meet somebody that you wish you hadn't. And the reason for that is because they stir things up for you in addition to whatever you have going on with the person you're committed to. 
Clark isn't a jerk for having some kind of feeling for three different women at the same time. That makes him human. Now, yes, 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 Clark's Kryptonian, fucking blah, 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 but you know what I mean. Having strong feelings for more than one person at a time is confusing and kind of unpleasant because you don't know which way to turn or which path to take. Clark's as mixed up by that as anybody in that situation, and his obvious preference is Lana, but at the same time, he didn't make a beeline for her the instant he was dosed with red kryptonite. He was perfectly content to grope Lois for a while. It's got to be acknowledged that the unrequited something or other between Clark and Chloe is a crucial part of their friendship. Hell, it may even be the glue of their friendship right now. Now, I've already covered the issues relating to Lois, and the series itself has addressed Lana and Clark ad nauseum. So, I don't think there's a whole lot more that needs to be said there. So, deeper themes and implications. In a lot of ways, Crimson is the logical and thematic payoff of Hydro. Or, it's an escalation. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. Or maybe we should call it a sequel? However you want to look at it, both Hydro and Crimson are not defined by secrets as such, but by revelations coming out that the characters aren't ready for. Lana wasn't ready to tell Lex about why she was reluctant to accept his proposal back in Hydro. She and Lex clearly weren't ready to tell anybody about their pregnancy here in Crimson. Throughout Crimson, the characters are having to confront the concealing and subsequent revelation of their secrets. Not necessarily the secrets themselves. These episodes center on themes of love and friendship being destroyed by deceit and betrayal within the context of premature revelation. Which sounds like heady stuff for two supposed filler episodes, as the douchebag haters always say it. As I think I've said before, season six is the shippiest step, uh, season of Smallville's entire run. But again, you can't argue that the conflicts and the tensions don't ring true of all the characters. Don't believe me? If I ever let you slip through my fingers, I have no idea what I'd be capable of. Not to go into spoiler territory, but that comes into play later on. That's not throwaway dialogue. It means something. Going back to Lex for a minute, he's absolutely prepared to beat the shit out of Clark when he busts in on his dinner party. Now, keep in mind, it was back in Hydro when, where Lex and Clark had a scene in Luther Mansion where they verbally tore each other apart. But then, just last episode... Lex commented on how friendly and civil Clark was acting. You can't help but think Lex was at least hoping that the courtesy and good manners were going to last. Clearly not very long. The perception is that a lot of these character-out-of-character character episodes have absolutely no consequences to them. At least among the haters. I truly have no idea what the hell they're talking about, in most cases, especially when it comes to Crimson. Chloe and Jimmy break up. There's more distrust between Lex and Lana than ever. We discover that something's rotten in Denmark when it comes to Lana's pregnancy. 
this truly is the start of Lois and Clark eventually getting together. But most importantly of all, Clark and Lex get in a scuffle in the barn. And Lex tries his level best to stab Clark with a chisel. But Lana's the only one who notices that the chisel ends up getting all twisted up and broken. Later, Lana steals the chisel from the Kent barn. Guys, this is the start of something massive. The show will literally never be the same again once this subplot runs its course. Anyway, as to other stuff, there are a few other small details going on that are kind of interesting too, but they're not really worth having their own little section for. It's interesting that Lois and Oliver were invited to the engagement party since Lex has openly expressed disdain for both of them. Lois back in solitude and Oliver back in reunion. And so because of that, it doesn't seem all that likely that Lex was going to invite them to his rehearsal dinner. And it's also not very likely that Lana was going to invite him since she's only met Ollie once and she's really not all that close of friends with, with Lois. So I'm just going to put this down to convenient writing. Something else. Believe it or not, Clark, Lana, and Lex have never had a scene together in the Kent barn before Crimson. I'm serious. This is their first one. Crimson marks the third time that Lois has learned Clark's secret. The first two times were actually both back in the dreaded season four. The episodes Spell and Blank. This is also the second time that Lois finds out that Oliver's the Green Arrow. Although she had her suspicions back in Hydro, a plan by Clark and Oliver actually ended up convincing her otherwise. Lois is the first known case of a human being being infected by red kryptonite. Also, Lois has the same reaction to red kryptonite here in Crimson that Chloe had when she was dosed with the uh, green kryptonite love potion back in Devoted from the dreaded season 4. They both stare at Clark and then whisper his name with lust practically dripping off their voices. Later, Clark says that Oliver's not even in the same league that he is. The Justice League of America, get it? Yeah. Speaking of Clark and Lois, he reveals his power to her pretty much the same way that he revealed his powers to Lana in the first timeline from Reckoning back in the fifth season. So, all around just some kind of interesting stuff, don't you think? Anyway, on to episode 14, Trespass. Lana's got a stalker. Or another stalker. Or something. On the one hand, Trespass... I mean, look, it's been a long time since Lana's had a real stalker. In fact, there's a good argument that she hasn't had this exact problem before. But even if she has, it's never been such a classic, traditional type of stalker who sends pervy messages and all that other stuff. So... Even if this isn't completely new ground, and it may be depending on how you look at it, it's still been a pretty long time since we've had a Lana versus a Stalker type of episode. On the other hand though, it's Lana. Still, Trespass is definitely a follow-up to Crimson. All the problems that went on in Crimson 
are dealt with one piece at a time here. For example, there's goings-on with Lana hovering over Clark's secret. I guess to kind of, I guess one instance of that, it comes out later that Lana spent a lot of time wandering the Kent farm looking for clues and answers. And you have to admit, that's a logical place to look for answers to Clark's mysteries. And how she even got to the Kent farm is manipulative as hell. She says that she should hide out there since, hey, who'd ever think to look for her there? But is she doing it because she truly that that truly is the last place that she'd ever that she'd ever go or because people think it's the last place that she'd ever go actually she wants to toss the kent farm for clues about clark's secret she knows that she may not get a better chance than this to wander around the kent farm so she's going for it and she ends up finding what's left of her old kryptonite necklace now those of you who don't remember Way back in Visage, from the second season, Lana loaned the necklace to Tina Greer when she was disguised as Whitney. Tina used it to take Clark down since she knew that Kryptonite fucked him up real good. But Clark's ship nullified the Kryptonite and turned it into what looks like glass or, or crystal or something. Just had a little bit of a mishap with my e-cig, forgive me. Anyway, so Tina, Tina assumed that she'd lost it, but, and by that I mean the necklace. Tina thought that, that, why did I say Tina? Sorry. Lana thought it had been lost, but here it is, right in front of her. And she doesn't know that Clark's ship is what transformed it. All she knows is that the necklace isn't made of meteor rock anymore. You see, Lex stabbed Clark with a chisel back in Crimson, and because Clark's Superman, it got all chewed up. Now, maybe that could be explained away, but between that and the necklace, there are two really weird souvenirs from Clark's weird misadventures. Still, Lana knows that Lex believes Clark's been sitting on a major secret for years now. Isn't it interesting that she hasn't shared any of that stuff with them? Now, when I was talking about Vessel from the fifth season, I said, I've mentioned all this stuff in the past, but it's always nice when the characters confirm it for me. Originally, Lex was a spoiled, pampered little Luthercourt prince. But Clark saving Lex on the bridge back in the pilot gave Lex an entirely new purpose. And odds are it started off as genuine friendship. But the closer Lex got to Clark as a friend, the more Lex wanted to be Clark. It wasn't enough to know someone like Clark. And after a while, it wasn't enough to be friends with someone like Clark. Before too long, Lex's jealousy made him want to be Clark. But Obviously, that's not possible, so, as much as possible, Lex started working to take everything that Clark has. And as Lex himself points out, the only thing he could really take from Clark was Lana. Apart from helping engineer their breakup, Lex's interest in Lana begins and ends with the fact that she's Clark's ex-girlfriend. It wouldn't be enough to have gotten into Lana's pants before Clark did. 
No. Clark had to get there first. Only then could Lex give it a shot. I mean, there are no words for how sick and twisted that is. But at the same time, it's also hard to argue that it's not true. So, basically, Clark was the original bonding agent for Lex and Lana's relationship, but that can only be a short-term thing. Sooner or later, if love isn't the bonding agent of your relationship with somebody, the whole thing's gonna fall apart. And that's what we're seeing here. These are the first major cracks that we see in the Lex-Lana relationship. Lex and Lana, as a couple, have always had the veneer of unity, but guys, you have to understand, it's completely false. Push comes to shove, they're both only gonna look out for number one, especially where Clark's concerned. If it had been Lex circling uh, Clark's secret, rest assured, he'd have kept all of it from Lana too. In fact, Lex and Lana are mirrored somewhat by Chloe and Jimmy. Jimmy was convinced that Chloe still has a thing for Clark back in Crimson, so he dumped her. By their actions, Clark and Chloe show him otherwise. Clark unintentionally drove a wedge between Chloe and Jimmy, and he did what he could to put them back together. And because their relationship was founded upon genuine affection for one another, you could argue that they would have started up with, with each other sooner or later anyway. All Clark did was speed the process up. The same thing is basically true of Lex and Lana, but in reverse. You could argue that their relationship is doomed anyway, and all Clark's doing is speeding that process up too. But going back to Jimmy and Chloe for a minute, at first, she was reluctant to tell Clark about her problems with Jimmy. Maybe she knew that Clark could take it personally. Maybe she just didn't want to talk about it because, let's face it, that's kind of hard stuff to talk about. But because this is a TV show, she eventually comes clean. And Clark takes it a little personally. Smallville's shippiest season, people. This is the type of analysis that I have to do right now because there's really not a whole lot else to talk about. And I don't mean that as a slam. I'm just saying it's true. Looks like you're working out some issues there. Just doing a little honest work, Lex. You should try it sometime. Why start now? My life's perfect. What do you want? Nothing. Now I just wanted to take a little sleigh ride down memory lane, visit the scene of the crime. Hey, there's where you took my fiance after kidnapping her right before you tried to kill me. I wasn't myself that night. I'm sorry. Sorry? What, that you didn't finish the job? <laughs> you know, I'm still a bit fuzzy on the details, but with you trying to choke the life out of me, but what fascinates me is how, after all that, Lana could still feel safe coming here. That was her choice. I had nothing to do with it. You never do. That's all right. You see, I understand the allure of trying to unravel the mystery of Clark Kent. 
I suffered from it once too, when I thought you mattered. Are we done? Nothing left but the formalities. Don't look so surprised, Clark. Lana still cares about you, I know that. And I know what it would mean to her having you there. Is that really what you want, Lex? What I want? What I want is to make Lana happy for the rest of her life. And I want you to be there on our wedding day. To see what you lost. Make sure you are a sweet We need a head count for the reception. Lex and Clark's relationship's been over for a long time now. The viewers have been well aware of that, but until now, the characters have usually framed it as not seeing eye to eye, or having their fair share of disagreements, or other polite euphemisms. This is the first time that Lex and Clark have both mutually acknowledged that their friendship is over. There's no going back now. And like I say, there hasn't been any going back for a long time now. But for as melodramatic as that sound snippet may get towards the end, this is still Lex and Clark saying goodbye to everything that they used to have together. We knew it had to happen. But... That doesn't make it any less sad now that it finally has. So, other notes. A newspaper on Lana's bed was headlined Lexana, which is a nod to Smallville fans who create portmanteaus based on characters' name, names like Lexana for Lex and Lana, or Clois for Clark and Lois. And basically this all refers to relationships on the show. Also, we see the folded-up chisel from Crimson here again. And then, like I say, there's also the aforementioned non-kryptonite necklace that Lana found in Clark's room. And another kind of interesting thing is that, you know what? Believe it or not, this episode marks the 50th time that Clark's worn that red jacket and blue t-shirt outfit that he seems to wear all the time. Only 50 times out of... We're, it's at this point, well over 100 episodes now, so that's kind of interesting. Anyway, Freak, episode 15. Lex is kidnapping meteor freaks, experimenting on them, and turning them loose. As an episode, Freak moves the ball forward a fair bit on 33.1. We haven't heard much about it since the episode Justice, so it's helpful to remind people that 33.1 is still a thing. It's still out there, and Lex is still victimizing meteor freaks. But... Freak does more than all of that. It establishes that Chloe's a meteor freak, too. In fact, she's been exposed to so damn much kryptonite now that, you know what, it's actually kind of hard to pinpoint when she would have gained whatever ability she has. Now, look, it weighs on Chloe because kryptonite is kind of, sort of, known for making people go nuts. And... When you think about it, Chloe doesn't have a very solid track record. I mean, considering the fact that her mother's in the loony bin and all. But you and I both know that just because someone has an ability doesn't make them a bad person. Some of these people might use their powers to save people. 
Okay, I don't know who you're talking about, but the meteor freaks that I've met aren't exactly in line to win a Nobel Peace Prize. These people don't advertise their abilities. Whoever did this, how did they figure out who to abduct? There's a kid who went to Smallville High who was blinded in the last meteor shower, and now he has the ability to identify meteor freaks. What's his name? This is an interesting exchange for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it plays into directions that Lana's character is going in the future. But like I say, that's the future. In the here and now, gee, you think maybe Lana's referring to Clark here? Again, Lana's getting closer and closer to Clark's secret, and she's protecting him as she goes along. When she meets with Tobias, she offers to get him the hell out of town and a cornea transplant with no strings attached in order to protect Clark. What's interesting, though, is that Lana's pursuing the truth about Clark in spite of the fact that Tobias says Clark's perfectly normal. When Chloe kicked over stones in, in search of Clark's secret, she found evidence. But when it's Lana's turn, the best she can find is circumstantial... I don't even want to use the word evidence. I don't know. Conjecture, maybe? Plausible deniability? And reasonable doubt? Chloe pursued Clark's secret because of the evidence. Lana's pursuing it now in spite of all evidence to the contrary. And again, the easy comparison to make here is to Lex. On several occasions, he had very strong reason to believe that Clark's just another guy. Lex has seen Clark exhausted, bruised, bloody, beaten up, and other things. If Lex were perfectly rational about it, he'd have concluded that Clark's just an ordinary Joe. But he didn't. He kept pursuing Clark's secret, even when the only proof he could find said that Clark's completely normal. Guys, that's obsession. And one way to look at it is Lex only stopped relentlessly investigating Clark. First, because he found other things to occupy his time, and second, he stopped wanting to know the truth about Clark and decided he wanted to be Clark. Otherwise, I think you could fairly argue that Lex would be just as obsessive about investigating Clark now as he always was before. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with Lana. There was enough justification for Lana to have started investigating Clark this season, or hell, any season before now. But Lana's seen enough stuff by now to have good reason to believe Clark doesn't actually have superpowers. She's just as eaten up by obsession as Lex was. Anyway, another interesting thing going on here is that Freak is a kinda sorta follow-up to Extinction from way back in The Mighty Season 3. During that episode, Van McNulty hunted down and killed Meteor Freaks. It was the late, great Jonathan Kent who suggested that maybe not every single person with a meteor ability is necessarily dangerous. For all anybody knows, some of them may even be doing their part to protect Smallville just like Clark. It's interesting that a lot of those same points are revisited here. The characters are older, wiser, and more mature. In Extinction, Lana had reason to think Clark was meteor infected just like she does in Trespass. Unlike Trespass, Lana abandons her suspicions during Extinction when Clark shows 
fairly convincing proof of not having superpowers. Lana was willing to let it go back in Extinction, but she can't do that anymore in Trespass. She must know the truth. Back in Extinction, Lana believed Van was doing the Lord's work by killing Meteor Freaks wherever he found them. Here in Trespass, she herself argues that not every single Meteor Freak is necessarily dangerous. And that's not just interesting character growth for Lana. Since the Mighty Season 3, it's interesting character growth for right here in Season 6, because earlier this season, she said that there might be some justification in experimenting on superpowered Meteor Freaks, but now that Clark may very well be one of them for all she knows, Lana's come to realize, first, that Meteor powers can actually be useful in the right hands. But even if they're potentially dangerous, nothing justifies wantonly slaughtering them. In Extinction, the suggestion was made that Lex could be a Meteor Freak himself. Here in Trespass, we see pretty much gold-plated proof that Chloe is a Meteor Freak. As I say, the parallels are, are too many and too varied to be a coincidence. Somebody obviously thought it was time to revisit the conflicts and themes of Extinction a few years later. Another interesting little tidbit is that Extinction sh uh, it showed someone getting the better of Chloe as far as computers and hacking are concerned, but that's all over now. Here in Trespass, Chloe is the one who does all the hacking and computer ninja stuff. Van was able to get the better of her computer-wise back in Extinction, but three years later, Chloe's able to overcome LuthorCorp's security protocols to hack into Dr. Bethany's laptop. Anyway, other stuff. Clark shows incredible uh, mastery over his powers by extracting the GPS device out of Chloe's chest. There was a time when Clark wouldn't have had anywhere near enough confidence to use his heat vision and his bare hands to perform a field surgery like that. But here in Trespass, his only reservation about it is his natural respect for Chloe's modesty. It's not a question of his ability to do it. Clark's just uncomfortable crossing certain boundaries with her, that's all. Now excuse me while I get a sip off of my Dr. Pepper. Another thing that Trespass does is show us how much the world has changed, even since the Mighty Season 3. Back then, it was only just starting to become known that there could be a lot of truth to those rumors about superpowered weirdos running around and causing havoc. Here in Season 6, nobody bats an eye at the reality of superpowered people living in their midst. In fact, one of the major conflicts of Season 6 in general, and Trespass in particular, is what to do with those people. It's not a question of whether or not they exist. That's already been settled. Now, the subject of debate is what to do about them. And what to do with them. In the big scheme of things, Trespass and Freak are both meant to advance certain characters and subplots on their way to a payoff. And in those terms, they're a success. Thanks to, the, to these two episodes, the events of episode 16, Promise, are all nicely set up. Now, we're not getting into Promise this time out, but the events of Trespass and Freak 
make everything that happens in promise inevitable. Lana's determination to learn the truth about Clark Kent is the main issue here, and that comes to a head in promise. For now, it's worth looking back at the four episodes we've discussed this time out and remember that, yes, this may in fact be Smallville's shippiest season, but at the same time, there's some remarkably powerful and well-written character dynamics that are going on here. Clark, Lex, Lana, and Chloe have left a lot of the illusions and idealism of youth behind. They're settling into more pragmatic worldviews now. Lana especially has benefited from all the, the character development this season, and in the past few episodes in particular. Not necessarily in terms of being a better person, but definitely in terms of being a more interesting character. It's development that's been, I think, sadly lacking since almost the beginning of the series. Granted, aspects of her maturity and her depth fall flat because of the years she spent being a cardboard cutout. I mean, we've always been told that Lana's the pretty pink princess, but we never saw that for ourselves. But for whatever reason, the other characters did. And they're surprised by a lot of the darker, more devious turns that Lana's taken lately. And that counts for something. This batch of episodes not only shows us the official end of Clark and Lex's relationship, but also very good reasons why. Push comes to shove, they've crossed too many lines with each other. There are too many grievances there, too much bad blood. And yes, it was inevitable. Superman and Lex Luthor are mortal enemies. The story had to take them in this direction, but at the same rate, that doesn't mean it's been fun to watch. Had Clark and Lex become bitter enemies back in season one, I think a lot of us would have thought of it as a cool, geeky fanboy moment. The fact that it doesn't happen after all these seasons of buildup makes it truly sad that these guys let so much come between them, even though each character was going down a different path that the other just couldn't follow. It just works for who these guys are at this stage in life. And this is the sort of thing that gets so frequently overlooked by people who are too damn lazy to do analysis of their own. The common accusation is that Clark and Lex had a light switch moment. Friends one day, mortal enemies the next. But it's like anything else in life. It's just not that simple. Clark and Lex's friendship unofficially ended back in Covenant from the Mighty Season 3 when Clark found Lex's shrine unto all things Kent, hidden away in the Luther mansion. But it was only in Trespass that both men realized they'd gone too far, done too much, and crossed too many lines to ever go back to how things used to be. It took him three years to reach the same conclusion that the viewers did. Their friendship is broken beyond repair now. There truly is nothing left now but the formalities. Season 6 may be Smallville's shippiest, but it's got an unsung, and in my, uh, in my opinion, a kind of unappreciated power and resonance for completely changing and reinventing character dynamics that the show has relied upon for years now. There's a lot of risk 
just in these four episodes, never mind the rest of the season. My fondest hope for this era of the show and the ones that we have yet to cover is that people might realize that there's so much incredibly awesome writing and character development that they'll reevaluate the series at large. But maybe that's too lofty a goal. I guess we'll see. But I'm having a blast with these retrospectives, and I hope you are too. Now, next time, I'm going to be talking about episode 16, Promise, and episode 17, Combat. Yep, that's right. Only two episodes. But what can I say? There's a shitload to talk about with both of those episodes. So I think that's it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. 
Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy.